right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Backlash Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff, with Team Rhino Outdoors, and if you want to check out that company, visit TeamRhinoOutdoors.com. My co-hosts today are Brad and Kerry Hoppy with Muskie Mayhem Tackle, and if you want to visit their company, check out MuskieMayhemTackle.com. Our guest today is going to be Jeff Vandermortel, WDH Guide Service out of northern Wisconsin. We put up a post a couple, I don't know, it's probably two months back about returning guests because... You know, we want to, we, we always talk how we want to get back to, you know, hey, we should have you back on. We should have you back on. And well, quite honestly, we never had any of those people back on. So we were trying to revisit a couple of past guests too. And we wanted to hit up the guests that everybody cared about the most, or, you know, some people cared about the most anyways. So Jeff was one of the guys on the list. Jeff uh, happens to have the day off the water. I think it's like his first day off in a long, long time, but he happened to have it off for his daughter's birthday, so he's going to celebrate his daughter's birthday by talking muskies with us. But anyways, uh, we'll get into Jeff here shortly, but uh, Brad and Carrie, how are you two doing today? Doing good, Jeff. Doing good. How's the, uh, it actually hasn't been that long since I talked to you, Brad. Unlike normal podcasts, we're usually under the gun on either, um, let's see here, Tuesday mornings or Monday nights to try to get them out in time for Wednesday. But we got plenty of time on this one. I'm going to actually have an entire weekend to to edit this one if needed. And the other thing is it's only been like three days since I talked to you. So have you been out fishing much this week? Yeah, I've been out every day, actually. Um, I am not fishing today. Uh, I, I say that, but I might slip out there this evening. Yeah, it's been good. We got a couple fish yesterday. You know, the day of the full moon was a little bit tougher, but uh, I think we talked about that in the last podcast, possibly. But uh, things are rocking again, so I can't complain. Water temps are down. It's looking good. I think uh, as far as the 10-day forecast, I think we're going to be okay for a while here. So nothing to complain about whatsoever, Jeff. Yeah, it certainly looks like we're going to see a little bit of warmer weather. At least we are by us for the weekend or whatever, but it doesn't look anything that's going to be too extreme. Like we have to worry about hot water. Hopefully, as far as that's concerned, I, I hope with the last cold front that we just had that that's, that's gone and a thing of the past. And based off of what I can tell, I mean, guys are getting out, they're catching muskies, and that's great. So hopefully that's not, that's something that we don't need to talk about anymore. I've, I you know, quite honestly, it's one of those things that I get tired of talking about is hot water. We all know the dangers. Some guys are going to fish. Other guys are going to stop. Most guys are going to stop, and it is what it is. We can only offer up our suggestions, and, and that's about it. Yeah, you're right, Jeff. You know, I, I, like I said, I don't know, two, three podcasts ago, I'm really impressed with how the uh, most of the musky population or musky fisherman population really shut it down when water temps got up there. And I, I commend everybody that they, they made that change. I mean, it's tough. You know, you only get so much time throughout the six months that we get to fish. And the last thing you want to do is cancel fishing because of water temps, but maybe go out there and chase some other species. You know, there's always something else to do on the water. So anyway, enough of that crap, right? Right. So unless you guys have anything you need to add to this episode... I would say we could uh, probably dial up the phone, get Jeff on. So as a precursor to this episode, we posed a question, you know, what people wanted us to ask Jeff on our Facebook page. So if you haven't checked that out, Backlash Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, you can also obviously, we'll just go through a little bit here. You can find us on, you know, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Google Google Podcasts, 
uh, iHeartRadio, Podbean, TuneIn Radio. There's a bunch of different places to find us. But uh, So we put a post on Facebook. People wanted us to ask Jeff, and we're going to try to cover that list a little bit. So we don't necessarily have a set agenda, a set rundown for this one. We're just going to kind of off the cuff, see how this episode turns out. So without any further ado, let's go get Jeff on the phone. So our guest today is Jeff Vandermortel, WDH Guide Service out of Northern Wisconsin. It's Jeff's daughter's birthday. So Jeff, thanks for taking some time out of your daughter's birthday to uh, come talk muskies with us. Hopefully, uh, do we have to sing happy birthday to her on this one or something? You know, we, we could and maybe play it for her when she gets a little bit older, but yeah, we could. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, we're going to do the podcast here and then I'm taking the kids. She wants to go fishing. So we're going to go fishing as soon as we're done with this, go find some bluegills and meet some family for lunch. Oh boy, bluegills. There you go. Now you got Carrie, oh. now you got Carrie's ears peaked. She's in, oh, yeah. she's in now. Oh yeah, we're going to go drill some sunnies, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's... Yeah, you're the only one who needs to like jump on board here <laughs> i'm the only one that's trying to hold the ship down with it you know on the musky thing if it was if it was just you and brad this thing would be bluegill talk already so i'm, oh, I'm just trying to some remain secrets are not meant to be shared some <laughs> secrets are not meant to be shared bluegills are sacred <laughs> have you not gotten anything out of the previous podcast <laughs> the anglers are multi-species, Jeff. Oh. Come on, you're you're 100% right. Absolutely. Well, I'll I'll have to go back and listen to a couple episodes. Apparently, I missed that part. <laughs> so, any anyways, Jeff, why don't before we start hammering you hammering you with some questions, uh, let's talk a little bit about how your season's gone. It looks like, <clears throat> based off of what I can tell, it's been pretty solid. Quite a bit more. Uh, it, I mean, it's it seems like you're having a lot of success with numbers of fish but also you've been getting some big fish especially for you know the area that you fish obviously a 50 inch fish you're not gonna you don't have a shot at them every single time that you go out but it looks like you've been having a good year as far as numbers and and quality fish why don't you talk a little bit about your season and then we'll start jumping into some of these questions yeah it's been a good year um i ran a few more walleye trips than normal this year at least once the musky season had opened you know after the whole covid thing in the spring there just kind of filled dates where i could and uh, quite quite frankly, business-wise, though, it's been never better. I don't think all the people getting canceled for Canada and all that. It's been, phone's been ringing off the hook, and I think everybody else appears in the same boat. So in that, in that respect, things have been good. And then from the fishing standpoint of things, it's also been very good. We lost a little time right after the 4th of July there. I took off about a week when the water temps were super hot. Normally up here, we can get away with that. You know, we normally get the cool nights. Um, but this year when we had all that warm, warm, warm weather, uh, flat ground conditions, it was kind of a, just took a little break, you know, and, uh, so that cost us some time, but overall we're on pace with last year, a uh, few less fish in the boat. I think last year I was at a hundred on August 1st and we just put number 80 in the boat the other day. Um, but the size has been better. Uh, we did definitely sacrifice a little bit of numbers for size this year, good number of fish between 46 and 49. And we did get 150 and a quarter. Uh, that was the biggest of the year so far, but a good number of those four foot class fish in the boat this year, which has been fantastic. Just about every time we come around to a full moon, new moon, or either of the quarters, we seem to be able to get one in the bag and we've lost a number of other ones too. Um, but it's always nice to see a couple of those biggest, bigger specimens make it in. So all in all, it's been a great season, good average size, good top end size. And, uh, we had a couple of chances. As well, so really can't complain. Uh, it's been consistent, but it hasn't been. We had a few of those days where it was really on fire, but a lot of it's been some tougher weather. Uh, 
you just got to grind it out and get your bite or two at day and make it count, you know? I had seen the picture and I know about it. The, uh, you had a really big tiger in the boat. You want to, somebody asked, talk to, ask Jeff about the, you know, about the experience with the tiger or the story behind it. Sure. You want to talk a little bit about that fish? Um, is it the, the big one from like a couple of years ago? No, I think I'm thinking it was, didn't you have a really, didn't you have a decent, we had two, we have we had two nice tigers in the mid 40 inch range this year. Yeah. We had a couple of tigers in the boat. The two biggest are both right around 44, uh, or two, the two biggest were around 44. Yeah, and so the one tiger, I mean, I don't know about, like I said, I'm not sure which one they were referring to, but the one the one that had probably the best story, and it kind of relates to a couple of other questions in terms of, you know, when to change baits and when, you know, it's going to be tough, what do you do kind of deal. Uh, the one tiger we did catch, I had some pretty good anglers in the boat. Um, they fished with me a couple of times before, and uh, the one the one guy in particular, he's traveled all over, done, you know, Fish Canada, Green Bay, a whole bunch of other places, and you know, so they, they know the program and, uh, but you know, you get out there, flat, calm, sunny skies, just brutal conditions. And we actually caught that one on a Marvin 88 and it was the only bite we had all day, only fish we saw all day. And, uh, it was one of those things where you just keep productive baits on the, on the line and keep grinding through hitting your good productive spots and waiting for one bite. And that fish came up and pulled the ripcord on that one, blasted it, came out of the water, you know, way out on the cast, all the way to the boat came out of the water another two times. And, uh, there was one of those, you know, zero to hero, just like that. You know, we all kind of knew the writing was on the wall with the conditions and grind, grind right through it and caught a big fish. So, um, but the, I'm not sure if that's the tiger he meant, but, uh, that was the, that was the most recent bigger tiger we caught. That one was 44. I was going to say, I'm assuming that was it. Cause I thought we talked about that other, the 50. I think so. Yeah. yeah. I think we talked about that one in the last episode. So if you want to go back to last summer. Find our first yeah. episode we did with Jeff uh, Jeff Vandermortel. We have a, I think we talked about the bigger tiger that you got. That, uh, yeah, was that, that 50, one was fifty two. Yeah, fifty two. Yeah, that was a bigger, that was a big fish. So staying and, on, uh, yeah. staying on the tiger topic, there was, you know, there was a comment on here about with you and like patterning tigers. Is that? Some, I mean, it seems like you've gotten a few. I don't. I don't want to say. Is this just? dumb luck or or the lakes that you fish is that <laughs> well, something that's pretty common do you have a pattern behind it like what's what's the deal with so you yeah there's, there's definitely some there's definitely something to it so i mean tigers in our populations up here i don't have any exact numbers as to like even a lake that you would consider to have quote unquote a lot of tigers i mean i still don't imagine it to be much higher than a few percentage points of the population you know you're probably maybe one to three percent of the population overall maybe five if it's something where they had a really good hatch or something, but even on a best case scenario, the number of tigers in a given system up here is not high. So targeting lakes with good natural reproduction, which are not all of our lakes, but a, a fair number of them, some of our better lakes, uh, you know, quote unquote, better, more popular is maybe a better way to put it. Um, they definitely have the, those tigers in the system. And when they have those tigers in the system, obviously you can't catch what's not there. So if you know that the tigers are moving, if you suspect that they are, or, you know, even if it's just through something as simple as social media where, oh my gosh, everybody seems to be catching tigers. You know, it's good, a good call on your part if you're looking to catch a tiger to be on water that has tigers in it, right? Um, but some of the things where I found where tigers eat the most effectively and the most, uh, the most often, um, definitely the heat of summer, the month of August is a fantastic time for tigers. Um, so basically I've got like three major times when I tend to see him, you know, big heat, post frontal and first meat. Like when they first start taking suckers in the fall, tigers love meat. 
Um, so they, and you, or if you run them in the spring too, you can get them that way too, but usually it's, usually it's a fall deal and they, they really do love suckers and that's, and that's not just necessarily right away, but tend to see suckers, see them show up on suckers. When the first sucker bite starts getting going, you still, you, the tigers kind of seem to come out of the woodwork. I think it's something seasonally that also happens. It's not just the fact that, oh, they're starting to eat suckers. It's whatever's triggering that sucker bite that cool down in the water, shorter days, whether it's photo period or, or water temp related or all of the above combined amongst another a set of other factors, typically stable weather too, uh, mixed in with those, so those crisp, clear bluebird days, uh, which tend to spur that sucker bite in the fall. It's a great time to catch a tiger as well. And most notably on suckers, uh, in particular, um, that is definitely a time where we consistently see them. Um, but you'll get these like one, two, three day periods throughout a summer where the tigers just seem to be active. And, uh, and that's, it, it just need to be on tiger water when that happens. In terms of bait selection, I've caught them on just about everything. I, I haven't found that, you know, tigers prefer necessarily one type of bait versus another. I, that I don't, I, I've caught them on suics and bucktails and rubber and everything in between glide baits, a little bit of everything. So top water. Um, so I, bait selection wise, not so much, but, but definitely there's certain times of, of the year that they come out. We did a article a number of years back in, in Fisherman, um, collaborated with Paul Truman and then Steve Ryan. And we talked about that and went through, all the times when world when world world record or rather state record uh, tigers were caught and almost all of them were in the month of August throughout the whole range of muskies. There's a few outliers there. I think one was in late July, um, but almost all the big big tigers that have been caught and registered and, and you know made public and in articles and so on and so forth over the last you know couple decades have have been in the month of August. So great time to catch tigers in August, at least uh, in the you know especially in our part of the part of the world. Certainly gives somebody something to look forward to for this month. So, yeah, absolutely. Anyway. Is, August is one of my favorite months of the year, man. It's a great, uh, it's a great time to catch fish. Numbers of fish, big fish. Summer patterns are established. The fish become pretty predictable. They stick pretty heavily. You know, stable weather like this. These last several days, fish have been tied so tightly to the moon. It's not even funny. I mean, you might as well just go have a sandwich or go go grab a burger somewhere or go home for a while in between moons because that's what it's like right now. Uh, and you'll get that anytime you come off of uh, some big unstable weather and get into these nice bluebird skies, calm, clear garbage in the morning. Almost set your watch by the time the wind picks up at eight, nine o'clock in the morning. Clouds arrive between ten and one, usually right about eleven, twelve o'clock. Clouds start stacking up. You usually get a window around then. Midday moon is your money maker, and as soon as that's done, the clouds go away. The wind lays down, and the last two hours of the day are bluebird skies and the fish shut down i'm not saying you can't catch them obviously there's still fish to be caught but but the, the main the main money maker is, is your midday window this time of year um, and a lot of people just simply aren't on the water for that time of day um but it, it can be definitely when the biggest fish are moving it's definitely the most fish are moving and it's 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 one of the best ways to be productive in the in the quote unquote the dog days of summer right Oh yeah, 100%. So let's move on to some of these questions. I think what I'll do, Jeff, is I'm just going to take them kind of in order of how I have them. We'll, there's like probably like 10 or 11, so hopefully we can get through all of them. We'll try to hit them the best we can. Some of these are going to be just guys giving you a hard time. So Yeah, <laughs> I saw a couple of them. Anyways, here's one from Alan Craft. He says, when the peak of the muskie rut occurs, uh, I'm supposed to ask you about <laughs> that, which is inside joke between Jeff and a bunch of other clients, you know. <laughs> Yeah, you want to talk to him about how you uh, didn't didn't you have a client or something ask you about when the musky rut occurs? I did a good client, a good friend of mine. Uh, he's a really good guy. He just he, we were we were fishing, and he's like, "So when does the musky rut occur?" And I just looked at him. I was like, "What? 
what do you mean? Like, do they spawn? They spawn in the spring, and he just what he meant was like, like when is you know like the ruts are deer, and he's a big bull hunter. You know, he's just kind of like what he meant was uh, you know when's the peak time to catch a muskie or one of the big fish most active is what he meant. You know, but it came out as when is the muskie rut, and so it's been a, a joke in my boat ever since. And uh, yeah, his name is Luke. He's a super good guy, and, and we've had a good time with that ever since. I mean, he knew what he, he knew what he was asking, but it just came out as the guys on the musky run. I was like, if I ever started a apparel line, it's going to be called musky run apparel. He's like, you have to do that. And I was like, all right. So, but yeah, the musky rut. So when they're rutting, they're rutting hard, you know? Well, we could also ask you then if, you know, like another inside joke would be like, we could ask you about when the nut, the musky build the nests and they're on the nest <laughs> for the spring spawning, you know? So, well, it's, a, it's actually one of the reasons you find muskies and eagles in the same location. They use the same type of nesting material, the, <laughs> The bigger the logs, the bigger the fish, man. <laughs> All right, moving on to something more serious. So, Alan also says, also under what conditions do tigers seem to be the most active? Which I think we covered, you know, in, in, yeah, in your sure. earlier answer. Yeah, right, post frontal, so. post frontal, yeah, post frontal, big heat. And by post frontal, I mean days like where it's clear and sunny, and you, you'll get that kind of that post frontal. Not necessarily accompanied by a north or an east wind, but almost always. Sometimes it's uh, to be like a southeast or whatever, but or light wind, no wind at all. But typically after you have a big weather maker come through or a big cold front or a big, or even big thunderstorms, um, any of those deals, usually the day, day or two preceding that when the bite does tend to get tougher. Um, I don't know if it's just something in their pike blood that, that keeps them moving a little bit, but they tend to be, they tend to show up. It might be the only bite you get of the day. Perfect example, that 44 from earlier this year, when you do get that bite, you know, and, and like I said, so it can help to be, they're wired a little different. The long and the short on tigers is they are wired a little different. So when the deck's stacked against you and you're really having a tough go of it, sometimes it's, it's a good idea to be on a lake with, with, you know, good natural reproduction. One, because you've got numbers of fish in general, but because you do have those tigers out there and sometimes they just march to their own drummer. And when they, I can't tell you, I've got, I can think of probably four different times where we've caught a nice quality tiger, you know, 38, 40 inches or better. It was the only bite of the day terrible bluebird sky conditions just a really uphill battle and you know and the success was definitely attributed it was a make or break situation and that was 100 percent made by that one bite that you wouldn't have gotten if there were no tigers absolutely then uh we have a question here from mike thorson he asks uh which of your favorite clients rips rubber the best i guess since mike's <laughs> asking the question it's probably certainly not mike right? <laughs> <laughs> well mike mike has uh has definitely proven himself to be a, a quite the rubber chucker. Yeah, he's a good angler, and uh, I get a lot of people coming through. It's one of my favorite things about the job that I have is being able to, uh, you know, instruct people and show people and teach people the skill set to go out and catch fish on their own, whether it be up here or back home or on any trip that they go on. And uh, ripping rubber is one of those skills that not a lot of folks, uh, more and more people, it's become accustomed, especially with social media. It's, it's become a lot more common practice, certainly. Just for example, the other day, we just caught a four-footer the other day. We had a four-fish day, and uh, those three fish uh, that Lucas caught, um, including that big one, it was his first fish he ever caught in rubber. And he's thrown it a bunch. It just never kind of came together for him. But, you know, he, he was out there just showing him what to do, and he was already doing it from the last time we had fished together one other time. And the cadence was right. Everything's right. He's like, I've never caught one doing this. I'm like, I don't know how. You're doing it perfectly. And it wasn't 30 minutes later that he, he drilled one. So, uh, and then, like I said, the rest came from there. We hooked, he hooked three more and landed two of the three, and one of them was a real big one. The other two were decent, like a upper thirties and a and like a low thirties. But yeah, I mean, so time and a place for everything. But ripping rubber is definitely one of those skills that I enjoy teaching folks. Then another question we had here from Noah Eichenbach was uh, fish movement throughout the year, 
and then also his progression when he's not moving fish, where he thinks they should be as far as relation to structure goes. So I guess the first part is fish movement throughout the year. I, I'll let you answer it, but typically it's like, for me, it's like shallow to a little deeper to deeper to back shallow to deeper. <laughs> so that's kind of how yeah. I go about it. But why don't you talk a little bit about that and then uh, just talk about what hap- your progression when you're not moving fish, you know, when you, when you think they should be on certain structure. So, you know, fishing where we fish up here, you know, you, you know, you fish up here a good amount too. And, and there's just so many lakes to choose from. Fish movement isn't necessarily something that you can make under a blanket statement, but I'll do my best to do that. And a blanket statement, yeah, they shallow for the spawn or, you know, deep and adjacent to spawning structure, pre-spawn, if you happen to be on lake that's pre-spawn, up on shallow during the spawn. A lot of times the males stay shallow during and after the spawn, much like with any other species. They're all kind of always kind of present on the spawning ground in on and around it. And then the bigger females tend to slide out. Depending on where you're at weed growth-wise, sometimes those fish will stay and inhabit if there's nice cabbage, nice weeds. Typically in our area, you're only going to find that type of scenario on some smaller lakes because on the larger lake, the weed growth is not yet that established. You're not established enough that they are using it to the point that they will in the coming weeks. So basically they go up shallow to spawn. And then when those big fish, the females, you know, ergo leave that area, they tend to hang out and around it. Sometimes they go pelagic, go up in water, depends on the lake. They're heavily. Um, but as a rule, as those weeds start to come back up and reach near the surface, they'll start hanging inner weeds then they move to the outer edges and then they kind of are on that outer edge and in on and around that edge in terms of structure related fish and if you get a cool down a lot of times they bury way back up in there they go way up in there because a lot of the bait comes from out deeper and slides up in there again it depends on the lake and in the cool down or a, a period such as this where we've seen these rap- water temps drop from you know around 80 back down to the low 70s uh, a lot of times that bait, you, you start seeing a lot less bait in the open water. And a lot of times what happens there is the bait has moved up shallow. Um, bait being shiners, small perch, stuff of that nature. This goes obviously usually stay deep, but the, the, if you're fishing with the perch is what I follow the most up here. I do target plenty of lakes with Cisco in them and I do follow around Cisco's, but by and large, the main forage that you're looking for is the small perch um, because that's kind of the lifeblood of the system. The walleyes follow that. There's probably some pike around. There's the monkeys follow that perch is kind of the the key ingredient in my opinion for most of our lakes. Or baby perch more notably. Small little shotgun shell shell size perched up to like the five, seven inches. Um and so they, they follow those around. So if you find those, typically you find the muskies, whether the perch are out in the mud, perch are up in the weeds, the muskies are there. Um and then again, midsummer they're hanging usually along the stripped edges. Uh, especially if you got those nice lakes with the, uh, you know, ten, twelve foot tall cabbage. Um, again, there's always going to be an open water component to that. Midsummer is my better time for rocks up here. I don't spend too much time fishing rocks with the exception of lakes that are mostly rock or have little to no weeds or rusty crayfish problems, something of that nature. Then it's a whole different set of rules. But if I've got nice lush, good weed lines, good weed line points, you know, there, there's, there's fish on those 24 seven. So you, you really want to just stick with those producers. A lot of times the reason you're not catching fish has nothing to do with the fact that you're not on fish. It's just either they're not eating or you're not throwing what they want to eat. And then, yeah, I guess that brings us to fall and, you know, cool down in the summer. A lot of times the fish pile back shallow. If it cools off too much, I'd say eight to 10 degrees or more is about my limit on there. That really seems to be kind of the end of their, their feeding activity or where it slows down dramatically. You know, reason being, they've just been on pear filling their belly for the last couple of days. And after that, they either are full and not as active, which is probably one of the main components of it because they just got done with, you know, 
Thanksgiving dinner, you don't go pound down another Thanksgiving dinner, right? I mean, sometimes you get them to eat and sometimes it, but it gets tougher to get them to eat again until they turn back on. And uh, a lot of those fish will either slide back off deep or slide up, stay up shallow. really depends on the lake. Um, but then moving towards fall, that cool down again, you'll get usually a heat up again after you get any of those cool off periods in summer where they slide shallow, slide back to the deeper edges, cool down in the fall. Of course, they slide back shallow again. And that'll bring in a lot of your open water fish, um, even on your Cisco lakes that late August, early September up here is, is very much fall uh, in our area many times. Like even this week here, we've already had a week of temps. You know, the other day I started my truck, it was 43 degrees, um, you know, 43 degrees on August 2nd, you know. So when you get those cool downs like that, always brings fish back shallow. They'll do that into the fall and then you get into turnover. And turnover is a tough time. Every lake's different. You, the best way to do it is to just know your water intimately. That's the time of year you don't want to spend monkeying around and trying to learn new water. Um, because going to a lake, most of the time I can tell, you know, I spend enough time on the water. I'm on the water pretty much every day and you get there and it just looks wrong. You know, you kind of get out there, things look a little topsy-turvy on the graph too. Sometimes it's super obvious, sometimes not, but you know, you get a, you know, just there three days ago, all of a sudden the water's a completely different color. Things seem off, you know, it's usually right around that 50 to 54 degree water temp mark is definitely another kickoff for you. If you're out there in between those temps, you know, and that's a sustained temp, not, oh, I found 50.1 degrees in some bay or this or that, not like that. But if it's a main lake, sustained 50 to 54 degree water temp is a pretty solid bet you're either in on or around turnover. Uh, and it can be a, a good time to maybe try something different. If it's at the early stages of that and, the, and you're on a smaller lake, go to a bigger lake where that has not yet happened yet. If you're on a bigger lake and you're in the stage, go to a smaller lake where that process is most likely already completed. That's the best way I can describe it. Uh, and some of the some of the ways to avoid turnover in general is to try and fish some lakes that don't stratify in the first place. So something that's super shallow, that uh, you know, a major cool down like we just had here can can change the change the layout of that lake dramatically in just a matter of a couple of days. Whereas something you know huge like a north twin or a trout or you know anything of that nature, it's going to take many many days or even weeks to, to to create that same level of fluctuation that you'd get in a lake with a max depth of you know fifteen or twenty feet or 10 or 15 feet. So you really have to be agile when it comes to that time of year. And, uh, and typically around that time of year, the, the moon windows in particular become super, super tight and super, super important, uh, more so than other times of year. You know, it can be, if you're not in the water for that magic 45 minutes to an hour, you might as well stay at home kind of deal, but it can be a five fish day. But if you're not out there for that time, you know, you, you really got to pay attention to that. Any, any weather arrival, or a moon window, or better yet, the two of those coinciding, you definitely need to be in the water. And that time of year is typically our, let's see, September 20th to like October 5th. You know, it's pretty, again, kind of a blanket statement, you know, tiny little 200 acre lake, not doing the same thing as a 2000 acre lake. But within that time frame, most of your medium and small size lakes uh, slip into turnover and complete the process. And some of the bigger lakes, it might be, you know, well into October before they complete, com complete the, uh, flipping process. So then the other part of Noah's question would be, what's your progression when you're not moving fish and uh, where he thinks they should be as far as relation to structure goes? So, uh, so oh, go ahead. Sorry, Jeff. No, so I was just going to say, if you're, if you're out on the water in, I mean, and nothing's going on, how long are you sticking to what you've done? And why don't you talk a little bit about what goes on in your head, I guess. So when it's a tough bite, you know, which is more times than not, you know, especially if you're going to fish seven days a week, 
you, you can't just cherry pick. Yeah. You, you might, you might make hay on a couple of days when you get four five, six, eight fish in a day or, you know, contact a couple of big ones and that's fantastic. But let's face it, 85% of the time, it's probably uphill battle, right? I mean, you, or maybe 95% of the time. What I've learned over the years for sure is that guiding is something that's hammered at home time and time again, tournament angling back, you know, years ago when I still fish tournaments, hammered at home time and time again, sticking with productive baits and sticking to spots of fish. I mean, you, you really just, you just have to, you just have to bite the bullet. Don't fall into bait change fever. You know, don't get that fear of missing out. Oh, they're over here. Oh, they're over there. They're not. They're right where you left them most times, more often than not. And you're, you, you have to decide. You're just having this discussion in the boat the other day, and it comes up actually quite a lot. Is because after you had somebody throw the same bait for, you know, three, four hours and they're just kind of like, should I throw something different or, you know, like, no, you know, and it's not necessarily that you don't have other baits in the water. If you got three guys casting, you'd say you've got a bucktail, a suic and a, you know, a dog or a deuce or a toad on you, a rubber jerk bait, bucktail, you got those three baits in the water. It's like, well, you know, you guys can switch rods. He can throw that and he can throw that, but those three baits need to be out there. We're covering all parts of the water column that I want to cover. And we're, we're covering a couple different bait categories. So it, from a guiding standpoint, I'm fortunate that I'm, I've usually got three good, three good baits running, you know, instead of just, if you're out there by yourself, it's geez, do I throw a bucktail? Do I throw a Medusa? Do I throw a Suic? Do I throw a, a Phantom? What do I throw? Whereas if you got three guys, you know, you got, you got, you're out there with full armor, right? You get the full coverage. So that is a big advantage. And, and what I've learned from that is, is again, sticking with your productive baits. If you know, this is your confidence bait on this water, it's not just fish memories. I'm not saying like, oh, I caught a fish on this color bucktail once, so I'm never going to throw again. That's definitely not the case at all. But if you know that a certain, you know, like, hey, in this lake, they like, you know, rubber in this color, in this color, I'm going to stick with that. Say they like, uh, you know, like that mud puppy color or brown or brown yellow. If that's the color they really seem to like in that water, I'm not going to be out there throwing black and orange tail. Not that that still wouldn't work, but if I know this is what seems to produce nine times out of 10 here, and this is also assuming you're not fishing the same lake seven days a week because you fish the same water that often they habituate and they'll just, they just stop eating it quite simply. Um, you'll catch them once in a while, but if you're out there pounding the same bait time and time again, then your, your success rate will go down invariably without question. Um, I use this more as a term of like in this kind of water, this is what they like or on this lake, this is what they like or in this set of lakes, this is what they like, but not necessarily talking about fishing one individual lake. Um, but stick with your confidence base, I guess, is the take home message there. And, and really ask yourself the question, am I, am I not catching because I'm not doing the right thing or am I not question, am I not catching because the conditions are poor? You know, again, we get back to these, the stable weather days, which I'm looking out the window right now. It's flat, calm, sunny, not what I'm hoping to see when I pull into a boat launch in the morning, but it's been like this every day for the past several days. And actually yesterday we didn't boat one, but, uh, we had two good bites, about a 38 and about a 42 both of which came in the morning, uh, about an hour after moon in the morning when it was flat, calm and sunny. And then, uh, during the day yesterday, we just did not get the bites we were looking for, even though the conditions seemed pretty good midday, maybe we we're just on the wrong water, this and that. But, um, it's pretty rare that, you know, we, we usually get a couple more bites a day or a couple bites per trip and yesterday's, uh, afternoon well, evening trip, well, we did, we did not. So, um, sometimes you just make the wrong call. I'm sure somebody caught musky somewhere, but, uh, maybe it wasn't a great bite overall, but again, the conditions are poor. Switching baits isn't going to necessarily make it neat. And in, in the toughest of tough conditions, I would say you're sticking more with baits like, you know, rubber, suix, you know, or bobby baits, or I just say suix in terms of that, that category. SRJs, gliders can be a good way to shake fish loose, especially if they're in tight cover and you know where they are. 
Um, you know, like there's a one weedy bay that you highly suspect there's a ton of fish in, especially if you go up in there with electronics, you see clouds of perch mixed in the weeds. There's a hundred percent chance that there's a bunch of muskies in there. So sometimes you just kind of got to grid it out and cover that water and, and try to get a reaction strike out of one. Snapping rubber over those weeds can be another way to do it. Ripping sewage through the weeds can be another way to do it. But typically in those scenarios, a bucktail or a topwater probably isn't going to get the job done. Maybe a real downsized bucktail dropping down to about, you know, like number seven or number five or something real small can do the trick. But a lot of times they don't want to chase and they want a reaction strike bite. Um, it's one of the reasons that stuff like rubber um, catches fish when, when nothing else will uh, or big jerk baits because of that, that just that shock factor. You can just kind of goad them into eating when they don't want to. It might be a one bite day, but it gets them to go. It's a more, more question of is it good conditions? Or am I not catching because the fish just simply don't want to move and they're not going that far for baits? So stick on your productive spots, use your productive baits, just have the patience and the, and the confidence in what you're doing versus trying to run all over the lake and, and switch it all up. And the best tournament anglers are the guys that do that exactly that. And that's how you come up with that one or two bites that changes the day for you. You're not wasting time trying to, oh, maybe I'll hit this sweet line that I've never fished before. It, no, man, go to the spot where you've caught 20 fish over the last 10 years and, and know that they're in there. Most of the times you'll see it when a window does open up in those conditions, it's actually pretty eye opening. And we haven't had a lot, uh, in the recent years, we haven't had really any of these baits come out. You know, it's another kind of a different topic, but we haven't had any new baits that have been like the super fish catchers, you know, like when the bulldog first came out, when double cowgirls first came out, Medusa's Lake X, like those are some of the bigger names for sure. But those fish, I mean, double cowgirl is a great example. Like up here, we're like bucktails. Everybody throws bucktails, but that was, and I think that was true across the board. But in times when you would have thought it would have been a tough bite, you still got fish to shake loose. And it was, and, and come out chasing it. Oh man, yeah, here comes one. And it was the same thing with, you know, big rubber when that stuff really started getting popular. It's not that the baits weren't out. I guess maybe it could be attributed just as much as anything to social media and just the, the rapid lightning speed to which knowledge spreads these days you know, up here with so many different lakes, you know, there might be a little lake over here that's never even seen a double cowgirl or a Medusa or whatever. And then a little lake over here where the guy that lives on it fishes it five nights a week and throws it every day. So you, you had those lakes where it just hadn't been used that much yet to the point where the fish had habituated. But times like that, it taught me too, that when you have baits like that, you, the fish were there the whole time, I guess is the take home message. They, they were there the whole time. They just didn't want to go. And when they finally decided to go, it's not like they just swam in from 40 feet of water up into seven feet of weeds and decided, Hey, I'm going to eat now. They were laying there the whole time. And when they turn on and a window opens up, it, it lets you know that you, you can't catch what's not there and staying on those fish is just crucial. Yeah, that makes sense. The uh, bait selection deal is the one thing I, I have a hard time with. Cause I, you know, you were talking, having three guys in the boat. It's great. I don't always have that option. Usually it's just me. Sometimes it's me and one other person, you know, unless I'm, you know, if I come up fish with you or I go fish with Steve or go south fish with Jeff or wherever I go, even when I went over by Brad, you obviously have multiple options, but for guys that right. fish solo, yeah, they're, I mean, they are at a little bit of a disadvantage because you, you don't have all that, you get all that feedback, you know, from, from what, what else is going on in the water. And that's what it boils down to, you know, every day the bite changes, you know, and, and being a guide, if you want to be successful, you know, I go out today, catch five fish up to 48. Great excellent day. Well, guess what? You're coming in the boat tomorrow. You don't really care. I mean, you care because yeah. Oh, wow. Great. I'm glad you guys did well yesterday. But like that doesn't help you, right? You got to do it again today and you got to do it again the next day. And you might have to do it again with the next group that night. Like you, you got to every, 
you're hitting the reset button every time another another person sets foot in your boat. So excuses don't count, right? You just have to do better, right? You, you just can't have an excuse for it. You've got to do better and you got to make that happen. And, and that is the way to do it though. Sticking consistently through that. And, and again, like I said, that it's a hard lesson, man. It really is. But I can't tell you how many times where we've been out and it's been, you know, three, four hours. I'm like, oh man, should I really be still throwing a suic? And like 10 casts later, you drill a 43, you know, it's like, well, yeah, there you go. And that might be the only bite you got all day, but it's, these are the baits they're going to eat. Here's where the fish are. And we're going to keep working between this spot, this spot, this spot, this spot until we get one to go. And after a couple hours, I usually switch lakes. In, in my, my style of fishing here, it is extremely rare that during an eight hour trip, I will fish the same lake the entire time. Very rare. Unless it's something like say the Eagle River chain or, something exceptionally large, Eagle River Chain, um, Three Lakes Chain, Man Chain, something big like that, where you've got, you know, you know, different lakes all connected and then they've got, you know, you got deep water, you got shallow water, you got everywhere in between. In those cases, I sometimes will, or often will, I guess. But it's very rare that I will launch my boat on a 200, 300, 500 acre lake and fish that for eight or nine hours. Typically, we'll go there, I'll hit the spots that I like the most to get some feedback from those fish and see what we've got going there, hopefully catch a fish or two. And if it's really good or I anticipate another, you know, like, Oh, we got another good window coming up here in a couple hours. Maybe we better off to just stay here. Then I'll stay. But usually what I'll do is I'll, I'll go to that lake. There's only X amount of malls on a spot, X amount of malls in a lake that are going to bite in a given day. And if you've gone there on a smaller lake, you know, inherently there's going to be less, less, less available fish to catch at least that are going to eat that day. Not every muskie eats every day. If you go to those key spots, burn up a couple fish, sometimes you're better off to just switch lakes altogether and go to fresh water. I mean, it'd be no different than, you know, running from one end of a big lake to the other. If you're on, you know, I think if you're on something like Vermilion, right? Well, I'm fishing over on the East end. We hit some spots here and then you've got so much water at your disposal, 38, 39,000 acres. All right, great. And even if you made a half hour drive to the other side of the lake, you know, what's the difference up here if you just trailer the boat 10 minutes down the road? It's, it's the same thing, right? But you're going to freshwater, fish that haven't seen your baits, or at least not, or hopefully no baits at all, but they certainly haven't seen the baits you're going to be throwing at them that you feel are working or are working. And so you've got a whole reshuffling of the deck. I mean, I know when you and I fish together up here, I mean, we switch lakes a lot. And there's something to be said for, like, getting there, and you almost develop a sixth sense of, you get there and you hit a couple spots with what you know they should be eating and you don't get the response you're looking for, like deep down inside, I already know that I picked the wrong spot. You know, I'm like, no, no, this wasn't the right call. You know, and hopefully that's not the case. But every now and then you get that. You know, yesterday, I think that was the case. I made the wrong call. I was on the wrong lake. I went out there. I caught, we caught a fish out there the day before, off period. Not good conditions at all, really. I mean, it was like sunny and, you know, calm yet. It was in the morning. Caught a small fish out there, about 32. Lost another fish, both off period. And I thought, I was like, okay, well, if I can get out here for a moon, we're probably going to rack three, four of them. It should be a good bite. And the next day I had, yesterday I had a father-son uh, for the evening bite and uh, for the evening group. And I was like, oh, I'm going to take those guys out there. It'll be perfect. They're kind of staying in that area. It was all, it all just kind of lined up. I was like, I'll get back over here tomorrow and uh, we'll go, we'll go wrap a couple out here. Got out there, called stacked up, wind picked up, everything looked good. We got out there, hit all the spots I wanted to with exactly what I thought they'd be eating. And it was crickets, you know, <laughs> you know, after that first or second spot, you know, approaching midday moon, which has been the moneymaker for three, four days straight. And I was like, Oh, yep. Wrong. I was on the wrong water. And, and I don't know, you know, what changed. Maybe those fish have been eaten for a couple of days, you know, and maybe it was just over. Maybe they slid up further. Maybe they slid out deeper. 
who knows, but I saw nothing on my side image. The bait that was there earlier was gone and the fish didn't show up for what I guarantee you was the best window of the day bite wise. So you just know that you, you know, zig when you should have zagged. So we fished through moon because you never want to leave during moon, fish through moon in the window, just hoping to get that one that was there. Altered tactics a little bit, upsize, downsize, tried a little bit, but pretty much stuck to the same program. Still didn't produce results. And at that point, I will absolutely always leave the lake. Like when you fish through what was the good conditions, if they didn't eat during that, as the conditions dwindle and become worse, I'm not going to stay there. You know, I'm going to go somewhere else that might be on because up here we do get that like, hot lake factor like you go to a lake i've seen it so many times i don't know if we talked about this in the podcast another time or not but you know like musky league is a really good way like our, our musky league you can fish any lake you want so we got like 14 16 whatever it is number of teams almost all fish in different lakes scattered throughout the county and you know we were out the one night and it's a lake that had been off for me all year it wasn't producing i wasn't seeing the number of fish i wanted to see we went out there and we moved something like 18 or 20 fish hooked five or six and we landed three and it was just on fire. And they were mostly between two spots. There's two spots and like two major weed points and they're just stacked with fish. Every time we go through there, here comes another one. Here comes another one everywhere from 30 inches to 45, 47 inches. And they just were loaded in there. And, and we, I just couldn't believe it. I'm like, dude, the, the, the fish are on fire tonight. And the conditions were good. It seemed, seemed like a good night. I, I figured there'd be some fish caught. We got back there. There was one or two people caught shorts. And I don't think anybody else barely saw fish, maybe a lazy follow here or there, but like nothing to speak of. And here we had just an incredible night. Like it was, it was nuts. The fish were clubbing baits in the figure eight, going airborne. Everything, they were just on fire. And it was just that one lake. I mean, everybody else, I kind of scrolled through them. You know, anybody, you know, usually when the bite's good, I'll have, you know, customers and friends and stuff sending pictures. I had none of that. Nobody was, nobody was not a lot of chatter. Nobody at league did very well. And we just happened to be on the right water. So in a way, you're still kind of hunting for that dragon. We've got, you know, several hundred lakes up here to choose from that all have muskies in, and many of which are, are great musky lakes. You know, being on that right one can be a huge difference maker. There's definitely some luck involved there, but that's more of the dragon you're chasing a lot of times up here. And sometimes you'll get that lake will be hot for the rest of the year. And other times the lake will be off the rest of the year, and then you've got to get a major paradigm shift with weather and conditions. Most notably, if you've got a lake that you know is really good, has a lot of fish in it, for whatever reason, it hasn't been good. And then all of a sudden, after turnover, you go there and it's like you stick three, four, five of them every time you go out there with decent conditions. It just, it's just like the switch flips and all of a sudden, now they're on fire. It's something to watch out for, especially if these are lakes you're intimately familiar with. You know, it's just about 55, 60 different lakes over the course of the season with regularity. I jump around, you know, two, three lakes a day, every day for four or five months. So you, you cover a lot of water, but, you know, it's, it's not always the same lakes, but oftentimes the same type of lakes, if that makes sense, that are, on, are good at the same time. Yep. Well, then that kind of wrapped up Terry's question. Terry wanted to know how long you uh, gave a particular lake before pulling out and trying another lake if, if you don't have any action, and you kind of covered that already. So Yeah, the, the long and short of that one is definitely fish it through your productive period. If you're going to a lake that you've got confidence and you fish it through, you know, you're out there an hour and a half, two hours before moon and you fish until an hour after moon doing exactly what you think you should be. And everything feels right, but the fish don't show up. It's time to leave. Cause sometimes it's just not eating, you know, sometimes the lake's just off or maybe they're just doing something completely different. Who knows? Maybe they're up in two feet of water doing something else. But as a rule, if you're not going to change your, you know, if you're not going to change your condition, your tactic, and try and figure out exactly what all those fish are doing, which probably won't matter anyway, because the window's already closed. You can go do exactly what they would have wanted an hour ago. 
but they're done eating. You know, the windows, the windows slam shut, especially in these tighter, tough, stable conditions. Yeah, that's when I'll leave lakes. So then moving on to the next question, uh, Brian wants to know, there's tons of water to choose from up there. What do you look for in a lake when you're trying to find larger fish? Um, larger fish, it's, it's kind of subjective, right? I mean, if, if you're talking larger fish, like, you know, you want to, you want to truly catch or have your chance of catching something that's like a true dinosaur, Megatron, giant fish. I mean, you can't catch what's not there. You, you don't want to stick to your larger lakes. Right. Something like a trout, north wind, a, or a fence, or what have you. Big water grows big fish and has more big fish total. Maybe not necessarily per acre or whatever, but a two or three or four thousand acre giant body of water with a hundred foot of water in it and a decent musky population is going to have more 50 inches than a 300 acre lake. Bottom line, if the 300 lake has any at all. Um, so if you want that opportunity at truly, truly big fish, at least respective to our area, well, those are big fish anywhere, but big fish respective to the area, you have to stick to some of that bigger water. It doesn't always have to be like the super top end of that, but large, in general, a larger body of water and not necessarily larger in terms of like surface area. Like, you know, it could be a 800 acre lake that's got a max depth of 12 feet, or it could be an 800 lake, 800 acre lake with a max depth of a hundred. You know, there, there's going to be a, a big difference in the amount of water there to, to grow fish and for them to hide, especially when it's deep water, that deep water sanctuary provides a, a really great hiding place for them for them to hang out and be just kind of scattered in the window or open water. So they have long and the short of it is the less that fish get handled, the less that fish get encountered by humans, the better off their chances of growing to a large size and the better off your chances of actually hooking them when you come across it because they haven't seen as many baits. But inherently those lakes are going to be much, much tougher to fish and you're going to sacrifice the days where you could have gotten caught two, three nice fish somewhere else, or maybe even a four footer somewhere else in the hopes of even getting one bite on that type of water. So there's that, but large fish in general, I mean, Cisco's Cisco based lakes really do get, do get the kind of, everybody goes, you need Cisco's to grow big fish. I would say that's hundred percent false. I'm not saying it doesn't help, but even in those systems, a lot of times I think those fish are still eating a lot of perch and suckers because those, some, some of those lakes, even with Cisco, some of those big fish still spend a ton of time up in the weeds or if they weren't spending time in the weeds, I wouldn't be catching them there because I fish a lot of the weeds on those because that's the most consistent area to find muskies on those types of waters. But for big fish in general, it's, it's a homework thing, man. Something that's got a good population, something that you kind of expect doesn't get a ton of pressure, definitely helps. But, you know, even something like, you know, the Eagle River chain or something that gets a ton of pressure can still kick out some really nice fish. I guess it depends what your definition of a big fish is, though. Like, if you're looking for a 45-plus, they're in pretty much every lake. handful of smaller lakes up here that don't have um, or that have just, you know, really good population, you know, your, your wildcat-esque lakes, if you will. Yeah, probably not going to get too many 45s out of that. But you could bop right down the road to something like a high-end fish trap, which is a good middle-of-the-road type of deal for size comparison and, and certainly have a chance at a 50-plus at a, at a inch fish. Again, up here, that number is, those fish are few and far between. A true bump board 50 is really hard to come by up here. But, uh, you know, if you're looking for four, four plus footers, they're in just about every lake with the exception of maybe, you know, even those small lakes will still grow, they'll still grow a 50 inch fish, but it's, it's a lot longer of a shot, bigger water, bigger fish and deeper water doesn't hurt. Well, that's one thing I can tell you from my trips I've had up there with you in the last, you know, year or so, how many, I would say how many big fish there are, but like, you know, Northern Wisconsin doesn't have a reputation for lots of giant fish. And no. for guys looking for 45 plus inch fish, I mean, we've seen, we haven't gotten any of them to bite yet, but we've seen a fair <laughs> amount of them. 
And uh, oh yeah, for sure. I mean that one. When let's see, when was I there? Was it like June? I think we were there. I mean, how many did we see that morning that were over forty-five? It had to have probably been three or four. And then we made a change in the afternoon, and we saw another one that was probably pushing forty-eight, that, forty-nine. No, that was that was bigger. That was that one. No, it was a big one. That was a real big one. I remember you talking about the one with Andy this last June. Yeah, that one we saw at the end. That one might have been there. That was that was that was still one of the bigger fish I've seen all year in terms of like a follow. That was a big one. So, yeah, so, but you're right. I mean, we but we were on the sauce, and that just goes to show you they're there, right? But those are you, know, you talked to those forty five to forty seven inch fish. Like that's a that's a major player in a, in a in a in a medium or large or small size lake. Mm-hmm. You know, that might be one of the top ten biggest fish in those lakes. Whereas, like the one you and I and Andy saw on that one, that's 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 the biggest fish in that lake. I would say. I mean, there might be one that same class or bigger, but that was that was a horse. So I'm assuming you haven't got to measure that one yet. I did not. Have you? Been, I did not. Have you been back to even try? Uh, I did a couple times. Uh, we caught a couple fish there. I did get one nice one there, but uh, that one is still on the hit list. Yeah, I'm gonna one. get her at first meet. Yeah, that one. That one is a big. <laughs> I'm gonna one. get that one. I, I'm gonna get that one. If if it was caught, you'd have heard about it. We just seen it'd be there'd be pictures somewhere. The girth on that one and the length. No, that was like that was what I was. That was a 49 to 50 inch caliber fish for sure. Yeah. Until they're on a bump board, I have a hard time ever calling them a 50 unless they're like a real obvious. But that one was right at that mark for sure. 49 plus, if not maybe 48 three quarters. But I doubt it, man. I. We see a lot of that nice 45 to 47 up to 48 inch mark over the course of the season. And that one was that next, the next, next notch up. No doubt. That was a big one. Yep. Absolutely. So but like you said, oh, even to encounter that many nice fish in a day, you know, in Northern Wisconsin, you know, just, you know we were on the sauce. We just couldn't get them to eat, but we saw a lot of them. They were there. Yep. I, I got a quick question for you, Jeff. You know, you, you just yeah. said that bigger water, you definitely see bigger fish. So I got. I guess I'm wondering why you would go to a smaller lake then. Oh, that's a great question, actually. Um, you know, so again, the, the question was, you know, he's saying, uh, where do you get bigger fish? And I don't know if he meant biggest fish, right? One of the biggest fish I have handled was out of about a 280, 300-acre lake. Um, and that was one a good friend of mine uh, caught. And it, it, uh, it unfortunately, it didn't make it. It died. It, it deep-throated a, a bucktail. And he tried to release it, didn't make it. So we did weigh it. It was a 51 and a quarter and 43 pounds. And it was out of a lake with a max depth of like 22 feet sucker perch forage base and a 25 and a 25 and a half or 25 and a quarter inch girth. I mean, it was a giant. They aged at 24 years old and it had almost no teeth left. And the thing was so fat, it just looked abnormal, you know, at least prior, you know, it wasn't, wasn't a malax fish by any means, but it was a dang nice fish. And I uh, used to talk in a legit wade, you know, real scale 43 pounder. I mean, that's a big fish and that's out of a very small lake. So those, they do exist. Um, but also, you know, I'm, I'm quite frankly, if I'm in Northern Wisconsin, I'm, I'm happy with 45 inches, man. That's, that's a great fish. And, uh, and we do have a number of those, but, uh, in small lakes many times, but to truly crack like 50 in a smaller system is very hard to do. And if you're chasing what you want, like a true Northern Wisconsin 50, like if that's truly what you're after, then going to a system that has more 50 inches in it, even if they're a little bit less available, is probably your better option. Even though you, you will sacrifice catching, you know, you, you could have caught a 47 or 48 somewhere else, but if you want a 50, I mean, the number of years it takes between 48 and 50 up here on these fish is, is many. It's not like they're 48 one year and the next year they're 50. It's you know, a quarter to a half inch a year at that age would be considered an exceptional to good growth rate. So just kind of put things in perspective. And then those fish will top out. You know, you'll get fish that I've caught a number of fish that, you know, caught it at 48 three years ago, caught it 
you know, a couple of years later at, you know, 48 and a quarter or some, you know, about the same, you know, within a quarter inch of what it was measured at the first time type deal. So they, they will kind of top out as well. Um, but in general, my, my, most of my clientele is not here to specifically catch a 50 inch here like you would have on say a St. Clair or, or probably even a lot of your Minnesota guys. So catching nice fish and catching numbers of fish is good. I'm not out there, you know, dinks for cash trying to catch 28 inches by any means, but, uh, so no, I, it, I it's never, just one of those deals. No, I never meant it derogatory. I was just curious, you know, right. I, oh, yeah. I guess to give me a, a better idea, I mean, I guess I look at trying to hit lakes that I think I have the best odds at those bigger fish. And I was just kind of more curious why you would choose a smaller lake on a particular day is where I was going, Jeff. Oh, I got you. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't take it negative at all. I was just explaining just that, you know, cause there is like uh in the musky world, right. You got the, the 50 inches, like the magic number, right. So it's kind of a hard, you know, if you know that there's a lake that might have one fifty inch or none in it, like why would you bother fishing it kind of deal? And I get that. Um, but going to a smaller lake versus a bigger lake, oftentimes, you know, it, it might be weather related wind. Um, another time, like right now, a lot of the smaller water or not necessarily smaller in terms of acreage, but smaller in terms of, uh, less water, you know, darker, shallower stained flowage water, like your Eagle river chains and that kind of stuff where that's, that's been on fire all week here. And, and a lot of that water that's exactly like that has been on fire all week because that stuff was extremely hot. So going to those smaller hot temperature wise, when we had all that heat, you know, two weeks ago still, um, so this massive cool down that we've had a lot of those lakes, again, that, that responds much more quickly than a big lake does. And those fish responding kind, they like that. It turns them on. I, you know, which kind of brings me to another point, this, this whole idea that a cold front is bad for fishing. Yeah. That might be true in Canada or if you're chasing fish on shield lakes in Northern Minnesota, but a, a cold front is that's, it's like a five fish day, man. I mean, cold front is a great thing. That's what you hope for, at least in our area. I mean, it's, it's kind of comical. People all oh, struggled through the cold front today. And it's like, what do you mean you struggled? The fish were on fire. You know, I, I'd, I'd much rather have a, a 20 degree temperature drop cloud and wind and maybe some rain after a long stretch of heat than I would ever rather have, you know, sunny and 90 and no wind, you know, <laughs> like a, a cold front's a blessing. But in, in response to that question though, the going there because you'll get that quicker change, right? That water temp drops down, gets more in their comfort zone. It does it more quickly there than on a bigger lake. And those fish just, they just turn on quite simply. Yeah, that sounds great, Jeff. Thank you. Oh yeah, of course. So then, um, another question about choosing lakes and how you hang out, you know, cause you have, you obviously talked about, it. you got a bazillion of them to choose from up there. So Paul wants to know, how you make a call on a lake day to day? Is it a wind deal, a structure deal, pressure, time of year, etc.? cetera? You know, answering for you, I'm going to say it's actually a combination of all of that, but I'll let you answer the question. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, it's definitely, it's a combination of all that. Some of it's a lot of past experience too. Um, I get asked a lot of how, I know if I keep a log of all my fishing and I, I really don't, I should, I mean, I do, I keep loose notes in my planner kind of, you know, and I, and I keep track of what we catch for the year size wise and that I do have a tally of that. So I always know where I'm at on that. I like, you know, my season stack up. I'm a numbers guy. I like to know, you know, what we caught, what our distribution was, what the outliers were on the small end and large end. And just, I just, just for my own nerd, musky nerd purposes. But as far as lake decision on a given day, you just, it, part of it is being on the water as much as I am. You kind of know what's been working and what hasn't. And that's a huge influencer. Like, you know, for example, yesterday, seeing some of that smaller, more medium sized water kind of slow down dramatically following several great days. My next move was to go back to the medium and large size water as things re-rack. 
um, because I feel like that's where the next the next wave of bites is going to come from. So again, past experience, current conditions, and of course, weather is a huge factor. Uh, up here, we like to play the game called Dodge the Thunderstorm. Um, so, you know, it's raining in Eagle River and I might have to go fish Boulder Junction, right? Or if it's raining in Boulder Junction, maybe I fish Minocqua, you know, or, or you know, you, you're always kind of trying to dodge that too. So that's another factor. And then of course, if you get stuff with, you know, super big wind, I mean, you don't, you don't want to be fishing a couple thousand acre lake and 15, 20 mile an hour wind, you know, it's probably better off to tuck away on something smaller or at least a larger lake with some fingers and, and, and stuff that, uh, you know, you can kind of hide a little bit, makes it a little bit more comfortable for your clients, makes bowl control a little easier and uh, quite frankly, can make for some better fishing. Next up, Dominic wants to know your tactics for fishing the shallow slop and when you fish it. Um, typically, a cool down is the best time. Uh, cool down in summer. Uh, and by slop, I mean, if you're talking like, you know, super, super heavy, you know, yeah, three to five foot, thick, thick stuff. I mean, really, some of that's hairpin spinners and uh, or safety pin spinner and uh, um and top water are sometimes kind of your only options. If you can skate a, a glide bait over it, that's great. Also, my favorite way to fish heavy cover though is, is, is probably snapping is ripping suics like through it or running them over the top or snapping rubber, um, of, you know, pick your flavor type here, tubes, tubes, dogs, deuces, toads, anything that you like to throw the toads hop over the weeds a little better or for shallow stuff using the shallow deuces. Um, the shallow running deuces can be great. Um, even in the larger stuff, that gives you the larger, like the regular size, gives you a nice large profile bait that you can still snap up and keep over the tops of those weeds. Uh, when I'm fishing that heavier cover like that, I prefer to be fishing cabbage in that. If you're talking milfoil, that stuff becomes almost impossible. Um, if you do have a little bit of clearance between the top, you can also bring, you know, big blades, um, you know, double tens or, or even, uh, you know, like a junior card or mag eights, whatever you want to call them. Uh, for like your junior size there, you know, burning that stuff over the top or not burning, but like slow rolling to the best you can and keeping it just above those weeds will often draw them out as well. Um, really when you're in that situation, those fish are not poised on an edge to strike. And you have to remember that if you're fishing in heavy, heavy cover, it's a lot like deer hunting in a thick swamp. Like well, deer have trails, I guess. So there's that. But at the same time, if you're in heavy cover, you can't always see what's out ahead of you. And if you're the predator in that situation, you're not going to get an opportunity at everything that comes through that thick cover. You need to have it come through in a way that you can locate and attack and kill that, that prey item. So you need to cover it much more extensively too. Don't make one drift through and call it good. If you know that there's a bunch of fish locked up in some tight weeds like that, again, cool downs and stuff are a great time for that. And it also does usually spur the top water bucktail bite when you do get that cool down they start to like chasing like that, especially after after extended period of heat. So those baits are just inherently better choices because they are chasing down and, and hunting things. They're aggressive. They're active. Stuff like that that you can keep over the top of the weeds. There's never a wrong option, but the biggest thing is to cover it effectively and cover it cover it um, thoroughly. Okay, go back at different angles and you know maybe make a couple drifts through one way and you know and if you are using your trolling motor instead of just a wind drift or whatever to to angle in there differently in, in, in the areas, especially. And then as you start to mark fish, if it's a large, a large weed flat, like something on, uh, you know, some of these lakes up here, you have a, you know, anywhere probably you have a large weed expanse that might be 10, 20, 30 acres or more. Um, it's a good idea then to treat it basically as like an open water situation, which I'll do the same thing when I'm fishing a basin or, or any type of a mud flat or something that's a lot less featured. Um, even though heavy slop is, you know, it's, it's definitely a structure feature, but when it's all slop, it all becomes a bit more homogenous. So marking your fishing counters on your GPS can help you figure out where there's pods of fish sitting. They don't always group up, but oftentimes use a common area. You might have a 
30, 40 acre bay, but there's a, you know, 200 yard circle around which most of your activity comes or even a hundred yard, you know, radius area where most of the fish seem to be hanging. Now, whether that's because of different, which is where the bait is mostly concentrated. It's maybe a different combination of weeds. There's more cabbage there than milfoil or vice versa. Why those fish are there is always kind of a mystery. It's no different than why do they use one area of a mudflat consistently? Or trolling would be another way too. If you're trolling, you waypoint your strikes, you know, try to get clusters together of where you repeatedly, it gives you confidence of nothing else. Uh, it gives you something to come back to and it, it helps take that mental block out of the scenario there. But, um, you know, so fish it thoroughly, mark your encounters. And if it's something you're going to be committing to for a number of hours or, you know, especially again, tournament situations, this is a great strategy. And you know that they're in there because most people are going to make one pass through there or hit the edge and leave. If you're in there really trying to grind them out of there, um, mark your encounters and, and, and make multiple passes at different angles. So Kevin Carlson, he wants to know who your favorite client was on August 1st. I'm assuming it's whoever Kevin brought with him. <laughs> <laughs> well, we had a great time. Kevin, Steve, it was a good time. They're, they're great to your eyes, man. We, we had a great time. We had some interesting encounters out there and, uh, we had, uh, we were fishing the shoreline and, you know, there's wide open lake on the other side of us and there's a cast length between us and shore. And we had the classic guy in a boat come driving through, I mean, it's like two and a half feet. I don't know how he didn't hit. There's some rocks in there and some stuff to hit. Certainly. I don't, I don't know how he didn't hit anything, but he came through kind of in the, given the old Chicago snow plow, like one third throttle throwing about a three foot wake and just right between us and shore. And he kind of shimmied up to shore. I mean, he's three quarter of a cast length, maybe away. And we're just all kind of like, what is happening here when he had a whole open lake on the other side of us. And then another boat came in and followed his exact path. And I was like, what are you guys doing? And the, the classic response, he just pointed at the boat. He's like, I'm following that guy. <laughs> I'm like, oh, all right. Like, I'm like, well, you better trim up. And then we just left the spot. But it was it was pretty amazing. But um, no, my uh, Kevin and Steve, great guys. Look forward to fishing with them again. So then something we haven't never, I don't know if we've ever, I, don't, I want to say never, because we've talked about a lot of things on the podcast. One thing we don't talk often is uh, Tyler wants to know, do you find good success on lakes that have a pretty thick algae bloom, or is it best to fish a different lake until that clears up? Yeah, that's a great question, especially for lakes in our area. We've got a number of lakes here that are, are very clear <clears throat> for the bulk of the year. And, uh, you know, midsummer, like this, they bloom out heavily. I could, you know, there's, there's dozens of them. Uh, and yes, I actually, I do like the algae bloom. I will change up change up uh, your bait color. Um, you get to some of that stuff that's a lot more gaudy. Uh, and that our green lakes up here in particular, that um, the team, right, that, that lime belly perch, that yellow like that. I really like the yellow. I really like the chart, chart black yellow or, you know, black, yellow, green. Uh, and our bodies of water up here are tremendous for that. And white also. White is also another white and shark, kind of a lemon heady kind of deal. Uh, those colors, especially in sunny conditions with the white, and the cloudier conditions will stick to more like the black shark, but those are great color combinations for that type of water. And I do actually prefer in many cases, those lakes to be bloomed out the fish in those systems. And it's lake dependent. And it's also probably not in any small way pressure related, but when those fish are in those systems before they bloom, then you will typically get lots of follows and they are, they're just more boat shy. They're just, they, they like it dirty, man. They, not that you don't catch them when it's clear or as it's transitioning. When it's transitioning is the best time. As that bloom begins, there's it, it might be attributed as much to seasonal, you know, seasonal changes and changes in the environment down there that are occurring simultaneous with the algae bloom as much as the algae bloom itself, probably more so. 
but it's a good good indicator. If you get there, the lake was clear two, three days ago, and all of a sudden now it's got like those the larger particulates of algae out there starting to turn green. That can oftentimes be the start of a very big window. This can be some really incredible days where those fish go nuts. Uh, and then once it blooms out, they'll slow down a little bit and then or, and normalize, and then it'll you know then it becomes normal musky fishing again. But I would never, even as gross and ugly and yucky as that water looks when you're there, do not let that deter you. That can still be very good fishing, and sometimes it's even better. Um, but I would say upsizing your bait and brightening up your colors is a good way. So I have still done well on like black and blue and stuff like that when they're sun. I've still done good on the natural on the more your metallic colors, black and silver. Chart and black, you know, black and silver in the sun, chart and black in the clouds. Uh, I'm chart and black in the sun too works fine. And then uh, that perchy color, a lot of that, that school bus yellow is a moneymaker in that water along with like white and chart. So Jeff, we got a couple more questions left, but uh, for people that are listening, if they want to get in touch with you for a guide trip or, you know, whatever, how do you, uh, what's the best way to do that? I guess. Um, you can reach me you know, via phone at 920-639-6286. Otherwise social media. Jeff Vandermortel on Facebook and Instagram or WDH guide service or a combination of the two. And also my website, Wisconsin Muskie with a Y fishing guide.com. Perfect. So Dustin, he wants to know how long you work a pattern without success before trying something different or changing lakes. I think we kind of covered that already, you know, sort of ties yeah. in with Terry's question earlier. Yep. Right. So then John has a question and says in his, in your opinion, do Wisco fish act differently than Minnesota fish? If so, how do you approach them differently? I think at this point, you know, Brad, you probably have some experience in this too. I don't know if you want to weigh in on that also. Yeah, I, I would. Oh yeah, go ahead. Uh, Brad, you want to, I, I would say, yeah, it's the difference. I've not fished Minnesota a ton and most of my Minnesota fishing has been relegated to Vermilion, um, which I thought was really similar to the experiences I had in Canada. And granted when I've been there, it's been in the peak of summer, you know, so heat, wind, rock, speed have been largely the triggering factors. Um, when I fished the shield type lakes, but I would definitely say that, yes, there's a big difference. And you could even add in, you know, Green Bay, those fish are different. St. Clair, those fish are different. Um, they've got a little different, little different genetic makeup, but they also have, you know, vastly different environments. And like I say, Brad would definitely be the expert on Minnesota, but I would say, yes, they're definitely different in many ways. You know, it's interesting. I've fished both, obviously, and, and there's similarities and there's differences, of course. And, to pinpoint exactly what those idiosyncrasies are, I, I guess we could talk here for hours. But, you know, there's so many different things that take place. You're fishing a whole different system, if you will, in Wisconsin versus Minnesota. And then you can find a lake here in Minnesota that's just like fishing the northern lakes of Wisconsin. So it's kind of a broad question, really. I would say the one thing that I've seen or noticed and from a Wisconsin standpoint that I, I don't think works near as well as it does other places or excuse me, it does not work near as well here, and at least not on most of our lakes as it does in stuff like Minnesota, is that burning bucktails, the way that you guys do that up, at least again, I, I know that some of you, you know, you got a lot of lakes, weed lines and stuff like that too, where that can be the predominant areas, but that shield type pattern, you know, if you're, if you're burning bucktails over, over rocks at blistering speeds in Wisconsin, I think you're going to really struggle. And conversely, I, and when we fish tournaments, you know, over the years there, I, I always kind of, you could always tell by how people were working rubber, what state they were from <laughs> in Wisconsin, you know, with the exception of green Bay fish, like it a little slower. Um, but, uh, you know, in general here, the harder you're snapping, you know, the more work you're putting in, the more bites you're getting, 
Um, I would say that was definitely the same experience I had on St. Clair. I mean, you're ripping the living daylights out of giant baits and, and, and the harder you do it, the better your success was, especially when the fish were keyed up. And, uh, you know, you go to like Minnesota or something, it seems like it's just, or the guys coming from Minnesota, like in turns and then they found out, you know, it was a rubber bite or whatever. You'd be guys throwing, they had like these slow, long pulls. I mean, in the fall, that's definitely a better pattern, I think. And it probably applies here too. Like you catch them when you slow it down a bit, but here uh, in Wisconsin, it was joke if you make sweatshirts and say jerk it like you're from Wisconsin, you know, because you can tell just by watching, even on Vermilion and stuff, we fish the PMTT up there, you see guys that are just snapping rubber and stuff. It's like, oh, those guys are definitely from Wisconsin. It was just, uh, you know, whereas the guys up there, you know, most of the people there are throwing bucktails because that's what the bite was. But some of the differences, I would say, are definitely the presentation of baits, too. Um, but like you said, Brad, you could talk about this for a week and not cover all of it. The one thing that I, I think, too, Jeff, and this is just a theory of mine, is that speed really comes down to a couple different things. And it, one of the things that I notice when we're in really, really heavy populated uh, bait fish lakes, slowing down can definitely be a key. I mean, the fish almost seem lazy and complacent. Hey, they got a meal every time they turn and look, you know. And if sure. you're in an area where there's low bait population, sometimes speed can be a big factor. And that speed, generally, the faster you go, the bigger fish you're going to get to go on lower density of bait fish lakes. Yeah, that's super interesting, man. I, that's, that's really good insight. I like that. So last question, Jeff. Ignacio wants to know, when do you throw diving rise versus side to side? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, those two baits, in my opinion go hand in hand. You know, if you've got a good glider bite bite going, or if they're following gliders, a lot of times they'll eat. And the examples I'll use are like an SRJ and a phantom, right? That's typically those baits. I mean, they work all year. Yes, absolutely. But they really shine the first month or so of the season. And then right around that cool down period as well. Like for our area, it would be like a September ish area, you know, late August cool down through, through turnover, cool down the light, the, Final cool down before turnover is like, and then the first big cool down after the heat of summer, those two types of baits come right back onto the top of the list for me. Um, and I would say if you got two guys casting, those are two baits you want out. Um, making the decision between the two, it's a hard one to make the call on. Cause I think it, even at that point, you're still kind of boiling down to what an individual fish is going to eat. You know, this one might not want that one, but the next one might. Um, but if you're getting follows on one, switch to the other, and vice versa, I guess would be the rule of thumb on that. Because those two, those two baits do go hand-in-hand. Hand. When, they're, when they're going on one, they're usually going on the other, or it's like that category. Kind of like when they're going on bucktails in top water, right? Sometimes the top water is out producing four to one. Sometimes they don't want the top water, and they're just following it, or maybe spitting that a little bit, but they're crushing bucktails. Kind of that same deal. When they're on a top water bucktail bite, or you want both those baits in the water, switch back and forth to whatever is doing the best dive rise and uh glide baits same program hand in hand well jeff unless brad and carrie have anything to add to this episode i figured we're uh we're about that time i don't want to take up any a whole lot more time from you and your daughter i know you took the day off to to spend the day with her and not with us so uh, brad carrie you got anything you want to talk to with uh with jeff no i think uh we definitely answered some of the questions that you posed adam from our listeners and I guess ultimately, Jeff, thanks for coming on, man. Oh, of course, Brad. Looking for you coming over this fall. Are we going to see you this fall? You know, I, I'm not 100% sure yet at this point. I I would like to. If I do, it'll probably be just one short trip, Jeff. All right. Sounds good, man. Well, drop me a line when you're on your way over or something. If I end up getting an opening, maybe we can tie in and go out and do a little, do a little duck blast. It'd be fun. That would be awesome, man. Yeah, for sure. You know, yeah, anytime. Just let me know. 
keep it in mind and definitely uh, definitely give you a shout. I I might go try some different water too. So I'm gonna do a little. Oh, there's a lot of good stuff out there. There's a lot of good stuff out there that I'd be up on if I wasn't tied to where I am for work. Let me put it that way. Give me a call sometime. I'll point you in the right direction if you're looking for some pointers on that. I appreciate that, Jeff. It's always absolutely good. my friend. It's fun to get out there and blast some ducks. That's for sure. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. These cool mornings and cool nights got me thinking. The baby ducks are starting to fly here already, and seeing them on the wing is always that first start of the itch, man. It's getting going. Hands down. Well, Jeff, thanks again for coming out and spending some time with us. We appreciate all of our listeners every week. And uh, why don't you tell your daughter happy birthday from from us and uh, have a good day chasing yeah, yeah, we'll some panfish. All right, man. Thanks again for having me on and listening to me yammer on for <laughs> about monkeys. I like talking about monkeys. Yeah. Thanks again, Jeff. Much appreciated, Jeff. Have a good day. You bet. Take care. <laughs>